0: The author of Hebrews continues to expand our understanding of faith, our understanding of faith that pleases God, that gains God's approval. And we see today that this kind of faith is a faith that obeys God's word. It's a faith that is the faith of exiles and sojourners who are not at home in this world. And it's a faith that is forward-looking and future-oriented even when death approaches and the promises of God have yet to be fulfilled. So let's consider Abraham and Sarah. Our first point, Abraham and Sarah, verses 8 through 12 and 17 and 19. By faith, Abraham obeyed. In verses 8 and 12 and 17 through 19, The author of Hebrews paints a picture of the faith of Abraham. And we already know that the purpose of this painting is to illustrate what faith should look like, how faith should behave. And we read, by faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. That may be the most important statement that the author of Hebrews makes about faith. Obedience flows out of faith. In all that follows, obedience was the crucial aspect of Abraham's faith. His obedience flowed out of his faith. Faith was his root, but obedience was the fruit. We read in Genesis 12, verses one through four. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. The Lord said, go, and Abram went. If you get nothing else this morning, latch on to this. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon when he preached on these verses. He said, God, grant us a supreme, overmastering faith, for this is the kind of faith which we must have if we are to lead obedient lives. We must have faith in God's right to rule, faith in the rightness of his commands, faith in our personal obligation to obey, and faith that the command must be the paramount authority of our being. With this faith of God's elect, we shall realize the object of our election, namely, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Dear friend, have you this kind of faith? I will withdraw the question as directed to you, and I'll ask it of myself. Have I that faith with which leads me to obey God? For obedience, if it be of the kind we are speaking of, is faith in action, faith walking with God. If we have a faith which is greedy in hearing, severe in judging, and rapid in self-congratulation, but not inclined to obedience, we have the faith of hypocrites. If our faith enables us to set up as patterns of sound doctrine and qualifies us to crack the heads of all those who differ from us and yet lacks the fruit of obedience, it will leave us among the dogs who are without. The faith that makes us obey is alone the faith which marks the children of God. It is better to have the faith that obeys than the faith which moves mountains. I would sooner have the faith which obeys than the faith which heaps the altar of God with sacrifices and perfumes his courts with incense. I would rather obey God than rule an empire. For, after all, the loftiest sovereignty a soul can inherit is to have dominion over self by rendering believing obedience to the Most High. Boy, Spurgeon understands the connection between faith and obedience. And he understands that because of what he has read in Scripture, in places like Hebrews. But Hebrews isn't the only place in Scripture that speaks about this. Let's consider the book of James. James, in the epistle bearing his name, says, Faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's James 2.17. Faith, apart from works, is useless. James 2.20. And faith apart from works is dead again in James 2, 26. James is trying to emphasize that true faith, saving faith, God-honoring faith is always accompanied by works. And those works most assuredly are actions that are acted out in obedience to God. Those are the works he's talking about. So let us not miss this great truth this morning. Obedience flows out of faith. Obedience adorns our faith. Faith without obedience is useless and dead. By faith, Abraham obeyed. Now that may be the most important thing the author shares with his readers in this section, but it is not the only thing, and it is not the only important thing. He actually goes on to describe Abraham's faith and his obedient faith in many ways. By faith, Abraham exchanged being established and rooted for being unfixed and uprooted. Abraham left his country, he left his kindred, and he left his home for a place that God would show him. Faith is often trading what you have for what God has promised. That's what obedience looks like. By faith, Abraham exchanged what he knew For that which was unknown, he went out not knowing where he was going, we read. Faith in God may require moments and seasons of uncertainty. Obedience is required whether we understand everything or not. By faith, Abraham exchanged security and stability for vulnerability and unpredictability. He left the home of his father, for living in tents in a foreign land. Faith may require us to soften our grip on what we perceive as the sure thing. Obedience requires that sometimes we lean into God and find certainty only in him. By faith, Abraham walked away from what was familiar for, for that which was foreign to him. Faith may lead us on unfamiliar paths. Obedience may require we deal with the unforeseen, the unanticipated, and the unknown. By faith, Abraham exchanged what he was for what God would have him be. Abraham was no fool. His faith wasn't the whimsical wishing for some pie-in-the-sky dream. By faith, he believed in the promise of God. By faith, he looked forward to the city built by God. And it was a faith that cost him much, but it was a faith that will reward him with so much more. By faith, Abraham and Sarah trusted God for a promised son. In Genesis 17, God promises Abraham a son, Genesis 17, 15, and 16. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Abraham and Sarah had faith in God And Hebrews reports what is understood from the accounts in the Old Testament. From one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand in the seashore. Abraham and Sarah had faith in God that he could do what he promised. He could do it in spite of their very realistic expectations in regards to their own physical bodies. He could do what he promised. And then after a short excursus in verses 13 through 16, which we'll get to in a moment, the author returns to Abraham and his faith in verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The main quality of Abraham's faith pertains to obedience, and so the author finishes off his discussion of this father of faith by referencing perhaps the ultimate example of obedient faith. I want to us to hear that event this morning. And so I'm going to read the whole thing. It's from Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What an incredible episode in the life of Abraham. I hope that the words, because you have obeyed my voice, are echoing in your soul right now. The author of Hebrews has taken great pains to make it clear that a saving faith. A persevering faith is a faith that has assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen, but it is a faith from which flows obedience to God. The excursus in the middle of his, the author's discussion of Abraham and Sarah's faith further describes faith for us. Point number two, strangers and exiles, verse 13 through 16. The faith God approves is the faith of strangers and exiles. So the author, as he is prone to do, has in verses 13 through 16, a short aside in the middle of another discussion, his discussion of Abraham's faith. He desires to further enlighten the readers and to promote their understanding of faith. He has already mentioned the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though Isaac and Jacob only briefly, and he'll return to them. But he now declares, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So in the middle of this lesson on faith, In the middle of this discussion of the heroes of faith, in the middle of the discussion around the father of faith, the author of Hebrews wants to keep us grounded. He wants to keep us grounded so we don't think that faith in God equates to living the high life. For those of us who might be tempted to think that the faithful experience all the blessings of God's promises in this life, the author of Hebrews bursts that bubble. But for those in the midst of difficult circumstances, the author affirms that the painful context of your life has no bearing on your identity as God's chosen or on the requirement for you to have faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all died without experiencing the fulfillment of what had been promised to them. And they acknowledged. They acknowledged that they were not the cool kids. They were not the in crowd. They were not the A-listers. They weren't hometown heroes or homecoming queens. They were strangers. They were exiles. They were sojourners. Now, the aspect of faith I believe the author of Hebrews wants us to gain pertains to the actions of seeking and desiring. The patriarchs were seeking a homeland, they desired a better country. We read, for people who speak thus, that is, for people who speak about themselves being strangers and exiles, they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. The Christian faith is the faith of an exile, a stranger, a foreigner. It is the faith of someone whose ultimate goal is not found here on earth. Now, you might be thinking, since... Jesus came and accomplished redemption. And as I shared with the kids, there's nothing we can add to that. You may be thinking, are we really still exiles? Are we still foreigners? Are we still sojourners? And the answer is yes. Even though Jesus has come and accomplished salvation, even though we have been given the gift of saving faith and we are in union with Christ, and even though complete salvation will be realized, we will not experience the fulfillment of all God's promises on this earth. We won't experience them until Christ returns because this is not our home. John Piper has a perspective on exiles and strangers. When he preached on these verses, he said, so the point here." is that the life of faith is the life of an exile, a sojourner, a refugee. The promises of God are our real home, and we have seen them from afar and have greeted them and tasted them, and they have made us restless and uneasy. They have begun to shape our whole way of seeing and thinking and feeling. They have colored all our values and goals and desires. We have been put out of sync with this world because our treasure is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I think a great way we could practically apply this passage this morning is to commit ourselves to gaining and maintaining the exile posture that John Piper describes. We need to be out of sync with this world. We need to have a sense of godly restlessness even while we maintain godly contentedness. and Why? Why? Because that is the posture of someone who is seeking a homeland. That is the posture of someone who desires a better country. We need to look to the promises of God, understand that they are not all fulfilled yet, and remind ourselves that this, this isn't ultimately what we're looking for. Simon and Garfunkel performed a song called Homeward Bound, which has a chorus which ably conveys this exile posture. Homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound. Home, where my thoughts escaping, home, where my music's playing, home, where my love lies waiting silently for me. We are homeward bound if we have faith, but our home is not found here. It is not found now. We need this posture of faith. We need this attitude of faith because a faith that understands that we are in exile and we are sojourners is a faith, we're told, that results in God's approval. It's a faith that's anchored in the past, in the work of God, in the words of God. It's a faith that's anchored in the present, in the character of God, but it's a faith that is always looking ahead to the fulfilled promises of God. Now we can cultivate the exile attitude by regularly reminding ourselves that God has prepared for us a city. He describes this city in Revelation 21, verses one through four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's my home. Nicole and I, over the course of the next couple days, will be taking our children to say goodbye to their grandma. She's been moved to palliative care. And as I thought about that this morning, and I don't want to over dramatize it, I know that many of you are going through similar things and have gone through similar things and will go through similar things, so it's not about my family. But it's a reminder that this is not my home. As long as there are tears, as long as there is death, As long as there is mourning and crying and pain, I know I'm not at home. And it's unfortunate that God so so often has to use the painful experiences in life to remind us that we're not in sync with the world. I don't feel in sync with the world today, and I don't think I'm supposed to. And I don't think you're supposed to, because this is not our home. Now, we don't take on a posture of escaping. We're not trying to escape this earth. No, we're exiles, we're sojourners, walking through our lives as God has providentially laid them out for us. But this is not our home. And the eyes of our hearts should always be glancing ahead to that heavenly city which we see and which we greet from afar. You see, so much of faith is forward-looking, and that's what we see in the final verses of our passage this morning. Point number three, the patriarchs, verses 20 through 22. The faith of the patriarchs, patriarchs looked ahead to what God had promised. We read, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings, on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. As we consider the last few verses of this section of chapter 11, I'd like us to examine the Old Testament events that are referred to. And I believe that will help give us a sense of how the faith of the patriarchs was forward-looking. It was fastened to and fixed on the promises of God that were yet to come. Isaac's future-looking blessing of Jacob is found in Genesis chapter 27, verses 27 through 29. So he, Jacob, came near and kissed him, Isaac, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And in verses 38 through 40, he blesses Esau. Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall, be, shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Isaac's blessing of his sons relied heavily on the promise that God had given Abraham. But this was not the current experience of his sons. The current experience of his sons, while Jacob had deceived his father, he received the blessing wrapped in goatskins pretending to be Esau. And shortly after his blessing, he fled in fear of his life. The promise to Abraham that Isaac looked ahead to was that their offspring would flourish, that God would multiply them as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore, that they would possess the gate of their enemies, that all nations of the earth would be blessed. And clearly Isaac was looking ahead because neither Jacob or Esau was living that life. Isaac looked ahead to the promise of God, even though he died without experiencing them. What about Jacob? Jacob has forward-looking faith as well. It's seen as he blesses Joseph's sons. We read about Joseph's sons in Genesis 41. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so we can see Jacob's faith is forward-looking. It's future-oriented. And we can see that as he blesses Joseph's sons. Genesis 48, 14 through 16. And Israel, that is Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob, though he was near death, was still looking ahead to the promise of God, the promise that God had given Abraham. Faith looks to the future, it trusts in God's promises. It is assured of that which is hoped for, even when death approaches. And like Jacob and like Isaac, the author also speaks of Joseph in his old age. Now it's interesting, these three men did amazing things for God. And yet when the author of Hebrews focuses on them to use them as part of his illustration, he looks only at their end of their life. In fact, Joseph was at one time the second most powerful man on the planet. And the author of Hebrews speaks nothing of that but focuses on his future-looking posture as he neared death. Joseph looked ahead to the deliverance of Israel, a crucial step God's promises to Abraham would need to happen so they could be realized. Genesis 50, 24 through 25. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Even as they died, these patriarchs leaned into the promises of God, and they trusted him for their fulfillment. So concluding this morning, the faith of Abraham and Sarah was an obedient faith. The faith of the patriarchs was the faith of exiles and sojourners. The faith of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph was forward-looking, future-oriented trust in God's promises, even as death approached with the fulfillment of those promises still far off. Now, to finish this sermon properly, we need to talk about the object of faith, not just the character of faith. I said in a previous sermon that the faith of these Old Testament saints is ultimately saving faith and that the faith that saved them was faith in Jesus Christ, dimly perceived. Now, as I said, the faith of Abraham and Sarah, the faith of Isaac, the faith of Jacob, and the faith of Joseph was primarily an assurance and confidence and trust in God and the promises he gave to Abraham. Now remember, those promises are really threefold. He was promised offspring, he was promised land, and he was promised universal blessing. But by putting their faith in the promises to Abraham, the patriarchs put their faith in Jesus dimly perceived. First, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to provide Abraham with an offspring. We read about this in Galatians three six. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The patriarchs put their faith in Jesus dimly perceived when they trusted God for an offspring. But secondly, the patriarchs also put their faith in Jesus dimly perceived when they trusted God for a promised land where they could rest. Because we know that Jesus brings God's people into the true promised land and into their true rest. We read several months ago in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 8 and 9. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Jesus is their Sabbath rest. Jesus is the way to the promised land, the true promised land. And thirdly, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph believed in Jesus, dimly perceived, when they trusted in God's promise to bless the nation. You see, Jesus is the universal blessing by which Abraham blesses. Peter declared this when he spoke to his own people after God had performed a miracle through him and John in Acts chapter three, verse 25 and 26. Peter says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Jesus is the agent of blessing, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. Thus, when the patriarchs put their faith in God's promise that he would give them land and offspring, a blessing, they put their faith in Jesus, dimly perceived. And I bring these to your attention because we must must remember that the subject of our faith is Jesus Christ. Apart from God sending his son, apart from the son taking on flesh and becoming a man, apart from the salvation that Jesus worked through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, And apart from the forgiveness of sins extended to those who believe in him, any talk of faith or obedient faith or exile faith or forward-looking faith is futile. The fulfillment of all God's promises are found in Jesus. And if you have never put your faith in him, can I encourage you to do so this morning? Pray to God. Ask him to forgive your sins. And then trust Jesus for your salvation. And if you've already trusted Jesus for your salvation, if you've already placed your faith in Him, then know that obedience, your obedience, isn't to faith. Your obedience is to Jesus. And your faith should be an exile faith because we're waiting for Jesus to return. And your faith is forward looking. Because in Jesus, one day, all of God's promises will be fulfilled. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask, Father God, that you, by your Spirit, would help each one of us to apply this word. I pray first and foremost this morning, Father God, that if there are any who have never put their faith in Christ and entrusted themselves to him for the salvation he worked through his death on the cross that they would do so this morning. They cannot do that apart from your help. Help them, Father God. And I pray for my brothers and sisters who have put their faith in Christ, that you would, by your spirit, help them and help me to understand that our faith is an obedient faith. It's a faith that trusts you Trust you enough to obey you. And I pray, Father God, that you would help us by your Spirit to have the faith of exiles and sojourners and refugees and strangers because this is not our home. And though the world would try to convince us, would try to cast a spell so that we would believe this is all there is and live like it's all there is, God, help us. Remind us that we are exiles and we're strangers and we are looking for a better country. And I pray, Father God, that you would help us to have a faith that's forward-looking. I pray this in Jesus' name.